I hope that this moment allows us to have a deeper conversation on what setting families up for success looks like. And that is creating better maternity leave policies so that women even have the time to nurse if they're able, right? That we are better resourcing moms who can and want to breastfeed up with success from the moment the baby is born. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Just Black Talking. I am your host, Dr. Justin Black. Sorry to keep you waiting so long, but life happened in between. So we took a little break off and got back to business today. We have a very special guest with us, and we're talking about a wonderful topic that is news to me. So without further ado, because we don't want to waste too much time, we're going to jump into things. Hello, Heather, can you hear me? I sure can. All right. If you don't mind, could you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. My name is Heather Cabral, probably better known now as Brooklyn's mom. I am also the managing director of communications at uh, Faith in Action. It's the nation's largest faith-based grassroots organizing nonprofit in the country. That's oh where I do a lot of organ. I've learned to be an organizer through my amazing colleagues there. While we focus mostly on voting rights and immigrant justice, um, I'm certainly applying all that I've learned from them to uh, this exciting project with Mama Milk Bank. Wow, that that is quite a mouthful. Uh, there was faith-based, nonprofit, and advocacy and all of that. So it's really funny. And, and as we get into our conversation today, I think it will become apparent that some of this is just part of who you are as a person, that when you see injustice, you take action. But speak a little bit more about that organization. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, Faith in Action, we're actually uh, preparing to celebrate our 50th birthday this year. As I mentioned, we're a faith-based organization that does all things under the big umbrella of human rights, but largely focused on the impact it has on communities of color. It's a midterm year, so we're doing a lot of deep voter engagement work, hoping to have a million conversations with potential voters, 20,000 relational conversations. Those are deep, deep engaging conversations to make sure that folks are empowered and educated and have the tools that they need to access the ballot box this November. So important, obviously crucial, crucial information, and obviously a right of all Americans to be able to vote and have their votes counted appropriately. We're obviously in a uh, time of turmoil and misinformation and all that kind of stuff. So I appreciate the work that you're doing there. So let's lay a little foundation about who you are. We call that the Black story. So Heather Cabral, tell me a little bit about that. That sounds a little, uh, where are you from, Brooklyn? What's going on? Brooklyn, no. Um, my family is actually, I'm half Cape Verdean, half Mexican. My Cape Verdean family is from the very small town called Asomada. It's where Amilcar Cabral, for those who are African historians, know that he fought for the liberation and independence for the country of Cape Verde. Um, in 1972, we were part of Portugal. And he started the Pan-Africans for the Independence of Cape Verde, a political party that's still very strong in Cape Verde now. He was assassinated in 1973. My whole life, my elders who are now ancestors have always said, don't taint the family name. When you see injustice, do the right thing. And so I, I really grew up in a, in a freedom-fighting uh, family, if you will, Everything that I've known about doing the right thing came from my elders, my grandparents and their siblings, especially. And so I think that lives with me. 
Absolutely. So you're, you're like a freedom rider from Cape Verde. I'm, this is fantastic. Shout out to my good friends, my sis, Jackie Robinson, and uh, the large Cape Verdean population up in the Boston area. Uh, that was my first exposure to this uh, population and wonderful people, rich history. Excellent. And you, you, you mentioned Mexican uh, heritage as well. Is that right? Yeah, my mother's Mexican. Wonderful. Okay. So you are a freedom fighter by birthright. By birthright. Yes. Trying to make a, a Milkar Cabral proud. Wonderful. That's, I think that's a, a great spirit to, to live in. Now, you're in the Maryland area. Were you born and raised in this area? No, I actually grew up in Cape Cod in Massachusetts, but have been in this area for more than 20 years. I went to Howard University, graduated in 2003, and amazing career opportunities have kept me here ever since. Cape Cod, told you it's a bunch of y'all up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Howard University, Black Colleges forever. I'm a Morgan State alumna and I'm very proud of that. So, yeah, HU, yeah, everybody don't make the right decisions all the time, but it's all right. I'm, I'm pleased. I'm wonderful. This is a this is a family, and I'm glad to have you here to tell us a little bit about what's going on. So, what we're talking about today, and what I'm so privileged to have you here to kind of shed light on, is a crisis that has developed really out of my purview. Like this is not something that was relevant to me. My girls are older now and my days of using baby formula are long behind me. But for all of us, we've at least heard of the baby formula shortage that's going on here in the U.S. Start talking me through a little bit about this, when this happened, when you became aware of it and why this is even relevant to you. Yeah, I think around February, I think it, I could be wrong here. I'm no I believe it was February. Yeah. 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 I'm no formula expert. So don't quote me on all the data. But I think in February was when a major recall first happened. And that major recall, I think, just spiraled into um, shortages in, and also supply chain. Um, so between the recall supply chain, um, there's massive shortage of formula across the country. So, Heather, if I can just jump in for a little bit of background, my understanding is that in February of this year, in 2022, there was a plant in Michigan from the Abbott Corporation, and they're one of the major suppliers. We only have, uh, I think, four suppliers in the U.S. of baby formula. This plant ran into trouble with a contamination of a bacteria. It was linked to some illnesses and even a couple of deaths of young uh, children from the baby formula. And so that plant was shut down. But because of that, their productivity is, is substantial for how much formula they put out. And not only regular formula, but they also are the major producer in the USA of some of the specialty formulas for people with metabolic issues or allergies and intolerances. So when that plant went offline, this was a major impact to supply. If we go backwards, there's a little bit of a, you know, everything has a, a, a cause and, and a reaction. So obviously there's a pandemic and in the pandemic, a lot of households were stockpiling resources and it was not just toilet paper and milk and bread and flour, but it was also baby formula. And so a lot of this baby formula was scooped up off the shelves. And as a result, as they had these stockpiles and used that formula, now the demand for sales was dropping throughout the pandemic. So the manufacturers pulled back their productivity. They said, look, we're not selling whatever happened. Boom, we had a big sales flux and now no one's buying anything. So they pull back. Then as the pandemic evolves, now we got a lot of COVID babies being born 
Okay. <laughs> uh, people, it's interesting, but birth rate was actually down significantly during COVID. It was down initially, and now we're starting to see, I won't say a bump, but we're returning back to normal, which is a relative increase from the decrease. So now we're having babies born again, and now moms are rushing out needing formula. And guess what? There's none on the shelves. Not only because the, the, the manufacturers had pulled back in their productivity due to low demand from the stockpiling, but now one of your main facilities is offline, okay? So they cannot produce this stuff. So now you've got a supply-demand mismatch where there's an increased demand of new moms, new babies, new births looking for formula, and there's nothing on the shelves. And those numbers have been reported as over 40% shortages nationwide, and some places are over 50%. So you're going into stores and they're now instituting limits. You know, the Walgreens and CVS are saying you can't buy but so many at a time because we we don't have enough. So that's a little bit of the backstory on what happened. And most of that came to a head in just February of this year. So just a few months ago. So I just wanted to interject a little bit of that background as you continue to tell us how this evolved for you and it came, came to be. Yep, exactly. So I, I've been really fortunate. I have had access to tools and resources and people who set me up for breastfeeding success from, from the very beginning. There are so many, so many disparities when it comes to being a black mother in this country from conceiving to birthing to then caring for your child. The barriers are significant. And I know that I was set up for success because I was, I had access to a postpartum doula, young, amazing black woman who may be an amazing guest for your show. But if not for her, you know, she came. I should say that so many mothers, especially black mothers, turn to formula because they don't have the resources from the beginning. And if you don't have a successful start to breastfeeding, babies drop weight up to 10% in the first week of birth. And that fear when you go to your first doctor's appointment can, you know, your the pediatricians will often say, well, just do formula, just do formula. Um, and formula is often pushed on black mothers significantly more than than any other demographic in the country. So if you're not set up for, for success from the time that you give birth, if you're able to breastfeed, you can immediately turn to formula because the fear of your baby starving, will you'll say, well, it's not worth my desire to breastfeed for my baby to be hungry. I was lucky. Joy Rucker, my amazing postpartum doula, came to my home, watched me nurse and helped me nurse. I had a C- an emergency C-section, and so it meant that I had to try lots of different nursing positions. She helped me set up my breast pump, gave me lots of resources to build a really amazing freezer stash. So when I went back to work, there was milk in the, in the, in the freezer for our caretaker. So few women have access to these kinds of resources. I only knew about a postpartum doula because of a colleague of mine. So all that to say that I've had a really successful journey. Brooklyn's almost 17 months old. We're still nursing. She eats like eight human grown folk meals a day now, but still, um, we still nurse morning in the morning when she wakes up and at night before bed. So I, I have a great supply and I, and you know, that's credit to having resources, but so few women, but black women especially are set up for success. And so they turn to formula. I mean, you've dropped so many different talking points just in that brief period of time. One is education, information, and resources. That is 
paramount for all mothers, okay? And when we start talking about minority mothers, lower income mothers, these are the resources that go first. Age working mothers. Let's just dispel with a few ignorant myths right off the bat. This notion of why don't you just breastfeed? Okay, everyone doesn't have one, a capacity to breastfeed, a desire to breastfeed. This is not a given that because you've had a child that the biology and physiology works in such a way. Many women desperately wish to breastfeed and their bodies are not cooperating or the child is not cooperating. Some children don't latch on well. They don't do a a good job to actually facilitate that process. Oral ties, which is significantly under-discussed. So many birthing centers, hospitals, labor and delivery units, pediatricians don't say if you're having a latching issue, oral ties is something that I discovered through a mom group I'm in. I mean, fortunately, we didn't have that problem, but that's not something that I heard in my journey in breastfeeding. And and explain a bit more about what that is. Oral ties are tongue ties or lip ties, which not everybody, but many people have, but it can impact a baby's ability to latch something that's easily can be easily fixed um, in your pediatrician's office. It's a small procedure that is, it's an easy fix and can help babies latch, but it's also under discussed. There's just not a lot of resources to help moms successfully nurse. This is information that many people are unaware of. This has to do with just a, a physiologic impediment for newborns to be able to latch on to mom and, and adequately feed themselves. But this goes into so many different issues. I think a deeper issue isn't just being set up for success. That's like the, the physical aspect of being set up for success to nurse. But I think an even, even deeper issue is maternity leave, right? When I look at so many women turn to formula, I know a lot of moms, working moms, I've been fortunate to work from home during the whole pandemic. So I've been, been able to be home. We have an in-home caretaker. So I've been able to breastfeed exclusively just about um, these entire seven months. But maternity leave in this country is terrible. Well, not only maternity leave, but when you work at a job, there is no accommodation for you. I work in healthcare. I have a colleague right now who's breastfeeding. There's no designated space, time or allowances for her to be able to pump, store her milk to, to, to take home during the day. And as you're breastfeeding, whether there's a child feeding directly from you or not, you need to pump. The breasts are filling with milk. It becomes very painful and uncomfortable. And this is something that needs to be done throughout the day. And we are just, this is a failure in our system of healthcare. This is a failure in our system of our uh, work environments. We do not accommodate for nursing mothers in any way. Another component you mentioned is the encouragement from healthcare providers to go to formula as opposed to breastfeeding. There's still stigmas about breastfeeding for for nursing mothers. There's just far too many different contributing factors for us to really address most of them. We could have hours of conversation on why I did not expect for, for nursing to be my favorite part of motherhood. I always approached it from a very practical and medical perspective, and I've fallen in love with it. I know that there have been windows where I thought that Brooklyn was done and I felt heartbroken. Like, are you breaking up with me? 
Um, you know, but the reality is some, some mothers aren't able to produce and, and that is hard and they have to turn to, to formula. Some mothers have to return to work and don't have adequate spaces to pump or places to store their milk. Or the reality is that you get, you have the time and the space to pump, but you get called into an emergency meeting. I work in media. There's breaking news. Like, that hour that I may have thought if I were working in an office where I thought I could go pump, like you get pulled into things and the day goes by and you just don't have time. So I think that, that at the root of this is also maternity leave, right? So other developed countries, I have a girlfriend in Switzerland who's like, we get a year. That's insane. A year, yeah. a year, really like you need a year to bond with your baby, to learn how to be a mom. Well, you know, not only moms, but but dads are afforded time off uh, in places. Again, it's it, it's a shortcoming that we have in our country. Yeah. Parental leave as a whole is is a real problem in this country. And I think that so many women who maybe started out breastfeeding and then the return to work and the need to pump and commute and be a parent and maintain a home, it's too much. And so they they say, I'm just going to turn to formula, which is understandable. I know that if I had to return to an office to work, I would have given up breastfeeding myself a long time ago. But when the when the shortage happened, Brooklyn's 17 months, so I'm getting like four ounces of pump, which is not a ton. But I knew, I know that I look down at my baby, who's now a toddler, and eats table food. But I know that in the beginning, I don't know what I would do if I didn't know where her next bottle was coming from, her next meal was coming from. And so when the shortage happened, I don't have a lot of experience with formula, but I know that if I had to go buy formula and weren't able to feed my baby, I would be scared. I would be devastated. I would be panicking. This is not really a referendum on breastfeeding versus not, because I mean, there's a discussion to be had, but the reality is that the majority of children born in the USA are reliant upon formula. Yep. And so for us to have a shortage where it's literally not available on the shelves, this is a problem. And it started off as a quiet problem and it has now evolved into a major problem. And you're seeing a lot of discussion politically and, and bureaucratically and administratively. So let's just catch back up. So February, we go offline because of a contamination issue at one of the major plants in Michigan. Now that's relevant because Each state has a a relationship with the WIC program, which is Mm -hmm. a nutritional program for women, infants, and children to provide food, amongst other things, to families. And each state chooses one of these four brand manufacturers as their state sponsor. So when you go in as a young mom and you go into your pediatrician or the hospital or whatever the case is, when they give you these subsidies, these reduced rates, uh, affordable access to formula, it's going to be with one of the manufacturers. That's a business relationship that goes back and forth. You say, why would a manufacturer give this give this away at such a reduced rate? Well, because you get a market share then. When you say, okay, Maryland, you're on Infamil. So anyone who's using any kind of subsidy, subsidy or government assistance, they're going to get our product. Well, they're going to stay on our product and their friends are going to see that product. And it just, it, this isn't a debate. This is real numbers. They're over 80%. When you get a tr- contract, you get that market share. So it makes business sense for these companies to do such. 
So when one of those major companies is offline, that state who has a contract only with that company is out of luck and they have nowhere to turn to because of tariffs that have been instituted, because of import and FDA regulations. We don't have the ability to import from other nations. So we're really stuck in this, you know, made in America way, which is good in some ways until you run into a problem where you have a contamination issue and your made in America facility can't make anything in America. Now you've got no formula to feed anyone. Mm -hmm. That's right. So you're caught up in this. You're there. Brooklyn is 17 months, but this is a COVID child, right? And so to some degree, I should say a COVID child, she's born during the COVID pandemic. Very much so. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I just felt heart. The more that I watched the news, the more heartbroken I felt. And I knew that there was a solution, not a permanent solution, not a perfect solution. Initially, I thought, oh, well, maybe I can find somebody to donate my milk to. And there's tons of human for human milk for human baby Facebook groups on Facebook and other mom groups. You can find there are 31 human milk banks in the country that are part of the um, national, the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. There's only 31. That's not a lot. And they've been obliterated by the formula shortage because families that, you know, would typically use formula have turned to these milk banks. And so those milk banks, even if formula gets back on the shelf tomorrow, these milk banks need to be replenished. So there's a huge, the domino effect of what's happening is significant. And so initially I thought, oh, well, maybe I can host a June pumpathon and just get as many people as I know to commit to pumping for a month and donate it either to one of these milk banks and they all have a screening process and they go through a pasteurization process. So either donate to a milk bank if you are are close to one, I am, or find a friend, a loved one, a neighbor who, who is in need and is open to human milk. Not everybody's open to human milk. And I, so I know that this is not for everybody, but I know that it is for somebody. Just really quick, I think that's a moment for for information for people. Breast milk, human breast milk. We have a long history throughout humanity, but even in this country, of sharing, donating, wet nursing breast milk to others. Okay, I've had people reach out and you know they've said things like, "Well, I don't want someone else's breast milk." Well, what would you rather do? You're using cow's milk, uh, you know. There's definitely some concerns you want to clear about as far as, you know, transmissibility and things like that. I know that um, some people would prefer to receive milk from somebody who's up to date on their vaccinations. And some people who are not open to vaccines are like, I would not accept donor milk from somebody who is vaccinated. But just a a quick note on that. I mean, your, your kids can drink human milk. Uh, and without any real infectious disease concerns from from the donor, you're perfectly safe to do so. And and there's a long established history and anyone can can check that out and, and feel comfortable moving forward with that. And we just know that it's it's better than, you know, it's it's the most easily digestible form of milk for a baby over, you know, formula has come a long way. So we know that there are so many formulas that are um, more easily digestible than even from when I was a baby. I was fed formula as a baby, but far better than 
cow milk, far better than goat milk, which I know is a popular second best. If you're not able to get form human milk and then formula, goat milk is um, a, a great option for some families. But we know that human milk, um, no matter who it comes from, is, is the best source and most easily digestible for babies. And no surprise there that human milk is best for human babies. So, Sucker. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it brings up a, a, a very interesting thing. And, and my eldest daughter had digestion problems. We had breastfeeding trouble. And so she had to go to formula. And then the formula itself was a problem. She was having allergic reactions. And so we had to do some of these specialized formulas, which were very expensive by comparison to a regular formula. And unfortunately, this shutdown with Abbott is one of the producers of such specialized formulas. So it's particularly impactful to families and individuals who have allergies, special needs, metabolic issues, And this is a real thing because they need something specialized and it's now suddenly unavailable. Yes. So June 1, we've launched Mama Milk Bank on Facebook. I have not recreated the wheel. I very much know that there's already Facebook groups for most of them are called Human Milk for Human Babies and then Insert City Here. So Human Milk for Human Babies, Denver, Human Milk for Human Babies, Boston. Those already exist. A lot of people don't know they exist. So my hope is that I can create a platform that's an educational resource for moms who are in need or moms who are able to pump and donate I had a conversation with the milk bank um, in Silver Spring that I'm donating to, and they said milk is flying off the shelves. So my only hope is that if I can connect families who are open to donating and receiving human milk, I'm able to do that or direct women to their local human milk for human babies Facebook group. I can do that, but certainly provide information on milk banks, which will be in deep need of replenishing because of the formula shortage. So Mama Milk Bank is really an educational tool and platform. I am not that tech savvy. I just wanted to create a place for people to have a conversation, to connect where there's need or where there's um, where there are donors. Yeah, so I'm not recreating the will, just hoping to start a bigger conversation for folks who may not know about the resources that already exist. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, this is all new to me. I didn't know there was milk banks. I didn't know there were Facebook pages where you could go on and connect yourself to these whether you're a donor or you're looking to receive, which is interesting. Now, you mentioned something earlier about vaccination status. Is there any way for folks, if they're engaging in these milk banks, to make a selection about, you know, I want vaccinated milk or I want unvaccinated milk? What I noticed in doing research is that in the Human Milk for Human Babies Facebook groups, people will say, non-drinker, non-smoker, physically, like they'll give their, they'll run down their personal stats, vaccinated, not vaccinated. Um, Mothers who are looking for milk will say, this is what I'm looking for. I prefer somebody who's vaccinated. I prefer somebody who's not vaccinated. And then human, the human milk banking association has a screener. So when, if you're going to donate to one of the 31 human milk banks in the country, you'll call your local, the one nearest to you. You'll do a phone screener and then an additional screener after that. They'll ask questions about your pump and uh, your health status. I'm sure each one is different. So you'll go through a, a formal screening for the Human Milk and Baking Association. Heather, talk, talk to us a little bit. So, so you get engaged with this. You reach out to your local bank. What's your next steps? And you, you mentioned they're asking and they're screening about your pumps. And so there's pump manufacturers. And just talk a little bit more about, about your relationships there. 
Yeah. So initially, because I had given, I had stopped pumping about a month ago after a work trip. I came back for, I was away from my baby for four days. I pumped that whole trip. I was miserable. I hated it. And I was like, we're not doing this. She can nurse as much as we want, but I'm not pumping. So I hadn't pumped in a while. And so I gave away all my milk storage bags to my cousin who's expecting next week. And then I was like, oh, I don't have any storage bags. And so I reached out to Medela, told them what I'm doing, and they shipped me hundreds of bags. And I told them my plan was to put together goodie bags for women in my community who were open to donating. So I've given a couple to my neighbors already. Um, So I put 50 six-ounce milk storage bags in each goodie bag along with a sheet mask because... You deserve a little treat, some chocolates, some hydration tablets, because you need to be well hydrated if you're pumping. So I got a Medela pump through my insurance. And then a friend of mine gave me a hospital grade Medela pump as well. So I have two that I both put away about a month ago. But then I said, I can help. I'm not making that much because Brooklyn's so old now, but I knew that I could if I could feed somebody else's baby for two days, you know, in my mind, I thought about my friend Sophia when she gave me milk, it was just enough. It was just what I needed in that moment. And so maybe I can donate just enough for what another mom needs in this moment. Maybe her, her formula will be back on shelves soon, but she needs just enough to, to help fill that gap. Or I donate some to the milk bank and that's, you know, just enough to help re- start to rebuild their supply. So a little bit goes a long way. You know, I'm not pumping 30 ounces a day like I was when she was three months old. But I know that every, every, literally, literally every drop counts. And uh, so I hope that I can pump enough to, to help make a difference for some, for some family. I mean, it's, it's very selfless. It's, it's in the Cape Verde uh, spirit that you mentioned. And it's important to point out the federal government has gotten involved in this shortage. They're trying to fast track the resources that these plants need to get back online. But we're still probably six to eight weeks away from being able to produce what's necessary. And then you have to then distribute it throughout the country. So this is an ongoing issue. And for moms and nurse uh, nursing moms and their and their youngsters it's it's a valuable resource to know look you can look in some of these other areas to try to bridge the gap uh, yeah. so i think i mean that's just brilliant it's brilliant it's not a perfect solution it's not a permanent solution and really it's putting a bandaid on a bullet wound honestly because what what can be donated is barely you know it might just help a family get by for a moment but really addressing the supply chain issue, the corporate greed issue, maternity leave issue or parental leave. Really, it's not just maternity leave, it's parental leave. Those are the roots of the problems, right? And so I think that we have to, I hope that this moment allows us to have a deeper conversation on what setting families up for success looks like. And that is creating better maternity leave policies so that women even have the time to nurse if they're able, right? That we are better resourcing moms who can and want to breastfeed up with success from the moment the baby is born, right? Like so many hospitals don't, you know, there isn't the golden hour, but my doula was like, latch that baby the second she comes out. And I did. And we were, you know, I don't know that if I didn't have the resources that I did, that I would be here 17 months in and and still doing really well. So I think I hope this moment just creates 
a bigger conversation, right? It's not just about a formula shortage, but it's about how we're setting parents up for long-term success and creating healthy children. The pandemic is, is remarkable in its exposure to our shortcomings. They go in all directions. So we're talking about healthcare disparities. Every mother wants the best for their child, but every mother doesn't have the resources, the time, the information, or the access to provide that. And that's a reality, okay? Many, many moms work in the industries that are so vital to us, the things that we were cheering for at the start of the pandemic. The, the, you know, it, it's like such a faddish yeah, thing. Yeah, it's absolutely. So absolutely. The mothers that we were celebrating, the essential workers, we're failing those women. Well, an essential worker who works um, in these industries, they don't have time to pump or nurse and there's no accommodations for them. They're supposed to be given the time and the space to do it. And I think anyone listening to this knows good and well that at their particular job, that's not a thing. And if you can imagine that mom no longer has the ability to, you know, run to the Walgreens and get her formula and have it ready to, to feed her baby, we're literally talking about not being able to feed your children. That's what we're talking about. The impact on black and brown women is is even more significant, right? Just looking demographically at who's working uh, an hourly wage job versus a salaried job. And probably those women who are working an hourly wage job are not working from home. They're going into a space. They're working away from their baby. So we're, we're talking about disparities that are tenfold, right? So you, you probably were already not set up for success from the beginning. But even formula, you know, historically, the Associated Press did a really great story about a week ago on a mom actually who lives in my county. So I'm hoping to connect directly with her because she has a one-month-old baby and is in desperate need of formula. And I'm happy to drive what I have over to her. But the story was on racial disparities and this new mom of a one-month-old baby talked about how formula was pushed on her significantly more than her white counterparts. And that's the layers from C-sections, right? Like Black women have C-sections at significantly higher rates. I had an emergency C-section. I do believe it could have been avoided, truly. And oftentimes women who have C-sections, but especially emergency C-sections, your milk comes in a day or two later. And that day or two no mom can listen to their baby crying when you're trying to nurse in that first, you know, you're just coming out of emergency surgery, truly. So it, it really starts from the process of leading up to birth and, and beyond the disparities. We have a long way to go to set, to set families up for success. I agree with so much of what you said. I work in this industry and I have the opportunity to be involved in these emergency C-sections, and I hear and see the pressure, the suggestiveness of, oh, it's just easier, just do the formula. Yeah, we push moms, uh, and particularly younger moms, minority moms, financially distraught moms at sometimes we push them to these things. And when you look at the totality of it, okay, We've got a voucher for you so you can get this formula very cheaply, free sometimes or inexpensively. And now your doctor's telling you that this is the best choice. And before you know it, boom, you're into a system where that's that's what you're doing. You're not breastfeeding. You've now missed your opportunity for breastfeeding. You're beholden to this formula. And oh, by the way, it's not available at the stores. It's super expensive. And so 
this really highlights our shortcomings. They go from everything to politics, to trade agreements, to imports uh, of goods. To I mean, it's just it doesn't stop. And so it's very it's very difficult. I mean, you hear people say things in a very uh, flippant way about, oh, it's the president's fault or you're just missing the the, the totality of this and the intricate moving parts of this. Exactly. It's it's patriarchy's fault, particularly it's white male patriarchy, that there are policies. You have people legislating on women's bodies who have no business legislating on women's bodies. It's way bigger. It's way bigger, way deeper than being a formula shortage issue and a supply chain issue. But the deeper things are corporate greed even deeper are parental leave, right? And so I think until we can have an honest conversation about those things, listen, I'm, I was, I was fortunate enough to, to breastfeed and still be breastfeeding, but I truly believe that fed is best, but our relationship with formula, it doesn't have to be that way, right? I know that not all women are able to produce, not all people are able to latch. Um, and that extends to single dads. My dad raised me by himself from the time that I was born. My mother had, my mother actually had severe preeclampsia and passed when I was born. So my heart is with dads. My heart is definitely, you know, my dad raised me and I was a formula baby. So my heart is definitely with the single dads, um, even same sex dads who are in desperate need of formula where obviously breastfeeding is not an option for them. So fed is best, but getting formula back on the shelves is not fixing the deeper, the deeper problem that's, that exists in our country. The more you speak, the more, the more discussion points you bring up and not to be lost here is the disparity in healthcare, particularly in minority women. We look over this stuff and we don't pay attention. Everyone thinks that, you know, you can go have a baby and that C-sections are just this fun thing that you schedule um, and you're home by dinner time. It's, it's not the case. Your mom, a Mexican woman, suffered from a condition that we have effective treatments for. And it cost her the ultimate, it cost her her life. And we see this. We continue to see this in minority populations and it has lasting effects. It's also not wasted on me that uh, you mentioned uh, kind of white male dominated patriarchy in the legislation. And, but as always, and particularly in this particular instance of nursing, here you are as a black woman coming in to help solve the problem. And that's always been the case. And I mentioned, wet, you know, I mentioned wet nursing in the past. And these are things that we've always turned to black women to do when, you know, because Difficulty nursing is, this is not a racial issue, right? I mean, obviously nothing is, but when mothers struggled, we turned to black mothers who wet nursed these children and, you know, gave them the sustenance and the nutrition that they needed. And essentially you're doing the same thing and it's a selfless act. And I think it's a a very loving act to try to reach out in our communities and across the country to provide at least the information to give women the option at a time where their options are very limited. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because the history of wet nursing made me a little uncomfortable about even setting out on this journey. It was like the, the optics of it and all of those things. But when I, but part of what gives me comfort is I know that who's impacted by who, who I could help who's impacted by this is probably another black woman. 
you know, the Associated Press story was about a, a black woman who lives 10 minutes from me. And so I reached out to the reporter to say, hey, like, if you can connect us, I'm happy to. My plan was to donate to um, Shady Grove Hospital. I'd already gone through the screener process and, and all of those things and connected with their team. But if this mom who looks like me and whose heart is breaking at this moment, if she's open to donor milk, I'll I'll drive it to her house myself. So yeah, you know, I, I did have some some internal challenges with the optics of setting out on this journey, but I know that those who are impacted are the most are women who look like me. Sometimes we have to fight the the urge or the notion to succumb to, you know, these stereotypes and these negative tropes about us and do what's right. That's what just Black Talking is about. That's what your actions have been about is, you know, we're doing what's right and we're shifting those perceptions about who we are and what we're about. And and this is a, a loving act for huma- humanity and for fellow nursing moms. What greater gift can you give to them, especially at a time like this? Yeah, I, th- exactly. I think I think it's wonderful. Well, Heather, do we know anything about the cost of the milk banks? What is the wh- what's the cost to moms reaching out to those banks? So my milk, so every, I'm sure they're all different. I just reached out to Shady Grove because it's the one that's closest to me. They take donations in hundred ounce batches. So I know for, for some women, that's like a week of pumping. For me, that might be like four, four months for me to get to hundred ounces. So there's no cost to donors. I think for those who need milk, there isn't a cost per ounce processing fee because it has to be pasteurized, right? So that's another thing of doing person to person donation is you're just getting straight from the source. Whereas if you're getting it from a milk bank, it goes through a screening and also a pasteurization process, which means that you can lose some nutrients in the pasteurization process. So the 31 milk banks in the country are nonprofits because there's a cost to them, right? So they operate as a nonprofit organization. So I know that they're open to lots of friends have said, well, I can't donate milk. My kid's 15, but what can I do? Um, So I think all of these milk banks would be open to monetary donations because they do do charitable giving to families that can't afford the processing fee. So yeah, there's no cost to donors. They're obviously waiting at their door with open arms for, for donor milk, but it, it does cost them to, to do the screening and, and course, pasteurization yeah. process. However, you know, you're, you're still getting something that's otherwise not available. And that cost is, is manageable to most, to most moms and families. Pumpathon. Pumpathon. My initial idea was to just do a month long pumpathon and be done with it and like whatever help I can provide in that month. Um, so I'm working with Tab, as you know. So I'm hoping to crowdsource funding to keep Tab and her team on to help run the platform longer. I don't have bandwidth for that. <laughs> um, I'm a toddler mom, demanding career, but I do have an amazing team that I'm paying, but I can't afford to pay them forever. So I'm hoping to do some crowdsourcing to just keep the platform going with some of the really valuable resources that they're putting together. So my initial thought was to do this June Pumpathon. So that, you know, has launched on June 1. I know that pumping is a commitment for a lot of women. It's time. It's it's many things. It can be taxing on your body. You have to be hydrated, well-nourished. So I thought that if we just did a month-long Pumpathon, then maybe women could commit to a time frame, right? Versus you're, you're pumping yeah. up indefinitely, right? But if you can commit to a window, that might be 
something that's more doable or tangible for some families. So how does anyone find out if they're, if they're interested in participating uh, in the Pumpathon, where do they go? You can go to my Facebook page, Mama Milk Bank. Um, there are tons of resources you can find out um, if there is a human milk banking partner near you. There are 31 in the country. So what I'm asking Pumpathon participants to do is either donate to one of the human milk banks that exist in the country or offer your milk on the platform. So you could say, I live in Washington, D.C. I have 50 ounces that I could give and it's available for pickup or drop off, um, whatever works for you. I also want those who are able to give and might not be able to pump in June or not interested in pumping. I know some people who say, oh, well, I have 300 ounces in my deep freezer. Can I just give that? Of course. So you can donate um, at any point to anyone if you have something already in your freezer stash and can't commit to pumping more. But the idea of the Pumpathon was really to just create a a motivator, um, get folks talking, rally women who are able to pump and donate in a certain window of time that felt doable. Wonderful. Heather Cabral, you saw a need, you took action, not only for yourself, but for others to try to address something that's affecting people all over the country. If that's not excellent, (laughs) nothing is. I salute you. I think we're all grateful for you and people like you who are operating in this spirit. And I really hope and wish for the best for the reach that your efforts can ultimately have. I could talk to you for hours, but, you know, hopefully that worked out. We kind of hit it hard and fast and, and shared as much information as we could. Absolutely. So I would just say last words. Um, if you are in need of milk, check out Mama Milk Bank on Facebook and post where you are and what you need. And hopefully somebody in your community will connect with you or find uh, a milk bank through the Human Milk Banking Association. Or if you're able to donate freezer stash or pump through the month of June, also use the platform Mama Milk Bank to share, hey, I'm in Denver, Colorado. I have 200 ounces in my deep freezer. It's available for pickup. Um, so I encourage folks who are in need or have something available to use the platform to share. I think that says it all. Mama Milk Bank. That's fun. That's terrific. Mama Milk Bank. (laughs) Well, I I hope that that reaches uh, many of the nursing moms out here who might find themselves in a bit of a predicament where they can't get to their desired formula on the shelves. And uh, obviously, we hope that that situation gets remedied as expeditiously as possible. But we know it's several weeks off, at least, before that's going to be kind of back to normal. Heather? Thank you for your time. I know you got to get to Brooklyn as she quacks along there. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit later about that uh, doula of yours. That sounds like someone that uh, the just black she talking. Uh, she would be an amazing guest. Yeah, I think that sounds like somebody that might have some great information, be able to dispel a few myths and give some some uh, guidance to our listeners. So Heather Cabral, Mama Milk Bank. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Excellent. Thank you. Just that's all.